everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes as we're into the final stretch of our book overviews. We just have a few left. We have uh, Ruth and Song of Solomon, the book of Ezekiel. I'm not sure how we missed that one. That's just thrilling. And then I was thinking we would finish up with the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. I think you pointed out rightly that it ties together a lot of what we've been talking about in the Old Testament. Exactly. And these, you know, we really enjoy these book overviews because it's time to get in the word together. And I hope that as you listen, this is a time to encourage you to get into the word. There's perhaps other than our second and third John episode, not an easier way to get into the word than this week's episode, which is on the book of Ruth, which you can read about 15 minutes uh, or maybe even faster. But every time we do these, it's the hope, you know, the person I think of in my mind is somebody who's like, yeah, you know what? I really, I want to go back and read that book. And now I've got the tools I need to make sense of it. I've got the background. I've got some of the passages I might run into. I've got some thought-provoking things that might help me to apply this to my life. It's just the the mm-hmm. intro guide to go and read the book that we're talking about. And so, like I said, it's there's nothing easier than to go and read the book of Ruth because you can read it at almost any point in your day. You can make 10 or 15 minutes to read it uh, or before you get up or go to bed at night. Uh, but for being such a short book, there is a lot packed into this story. In fact, people outside of the Christian world have commented on how well told this story is and how perfect a little short story this is. The, you know, mm-hmm. the interesting thing is you, we sometimes forget because we've got it in our Bibles that this is a very unique piece of literature from the ancient world. In fact, I sometimes think how significant would this be if it weren't in the Bible? Because I think right to the outside world, sometimes things get get written out because they're in the Bible. Oh, that, that is, it's a religious text. Well, I hate to break this to you, but every text before about 400 years <laughs> ago is a religious right. text of some kind. And this one, if it weren't included in the Bible and you just found it in a dig, you know, cause it's depending on when you think it's written down, it's about events that are pre 1000 BC in right. the uh, ancient Near East. It would be a hugely significant, hugely studied story because the genre, this little short story here is pretty rare. And the telling of it is just so perfect, so well done. It's so, masterful. So, sometimes we have to step away from the fact that this is a Bible story we've heard many times before to reappreciate how how incredible this little story is. Mm-hmm. It's one of the gems in the Old Testament. I think about there are two other books that strike me the same way that are really short, that are just little masterpieces from the Holy Spirit. One is Habakkuk. It's a short book about a dialogue the prophet Habakkuk has with God. The other is the book of Jonah, which we've also done, which is another short, short little story that's just packed with meaning. And Ruth, we don't think about Ruth this way, but it is. It's it's almost like a little play in four short acts. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it's packed with information. And the interesting thing about it is, unless I'm mistaken, this is the only book in the Old Testament whose name is uh, for someone that's not an Israelite. Yeah, I think that's so true. So Ruth, the, the heroine, if you will, uh, Ruth, the name is, she's not an Israelite. And that makes the story even more remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people will describe this as like a little Cinderella story in the Old Testament. It starts at a mm-hmm. funeral, ends in a wedding. It's uh, 
perfect little short story. It's it's even better when you think about the time period that this is told in. So you get in the opening lines that this is during the time of the judges. And if you remember our podcast on judges, there's a cycle in judges about the descent of Israel into chaos and moral anarchy. In fact, the last line of judges is in Israel at that time, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there's a little play on words that we'll get to. You're, the, you're first introduced to Elimelech in the opening lines as well. And Elimelech's name means God is my king, which is ironic because he makes choices that you probably wouldn't make if God were your king. But he's emblematic of a group of people in Israel who are Elimelech's. Their God is their king in name only. And mm -hmm. during the period of the judges, when Israel had no king, they did what was right in their own eyes. They were refusing God as their king, as you find out in the books of First and Second Samuel, when they do get it they do get a king. They're, ha they're having to reject God in order to get a human king. So there's a nice little play in the background here of what's going on at the time this book was written. Well, worshiping God and serving him were not the norm, even among God's people in Israel. So now you have a little bright spot of this family who, starting out with really terrible circumstances, proves and turns to the living God, and God is faithful to provide for them. So even against the backdrop of one of the darker periods of the Old Testament, Ruth is really a bright light for what it looks like when a family turns to trust God, even in terrible circumstances. Exactly. It starts out with this Israelite family who live uh, in Bethlehem, in Judah, of all places, and there is a drought there. And so Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, they leave. And they leave Israel and they take uh, these two Moabite wives, which in and of itself tells you they're not exactly following the rules. They've intermarried with non-Israelite uh, people and they go seek their fortunes somewhere else. And so I think you rightly said that Elimelech doesn't quite live up to his name. He's kind of following his own interests and seeking his own way in life. But that quickly turns south. And things don't go so well for them. Yeah, marrying Moabite women would have been almost like a stock phrase if you wanted to alert everybody. This is about the worst decision you could have made. Moab is northeast of the Dead Sea. It's across the Jordan River. So technically, it's outside what we typically think of as the promised land. It's closer to where Israelite, the Israelites were wandering before they came into the promised land. And in fact, the descendant, the the Moabites are descendants of Lot and his daughters from Genesis chapter 19. So they have a pretty foreboding start in that story. Balak, if you remember Balaam and Balak from the book of Numbers that we did not too long ago, is the king of Moab. Eglon, who is the fat king who's killed <laughs> by Ehud in the opening chapters of Judges, was the of king Judges, of Moab. Yes. And they worship the god Chemosh, which is a foreign god. You see him a couple of times in the Old Testament. And uh, it would almost be like saying how to ruin your life. You know that book, How to Ruin Your Life by 30. This is really how to ruin your life by 30. Take your family with your sons, marry Moabite women. And sure enough, things get worse. The, the sons die. Elimelech dies. It's just the three women, Naomi, Ruth, and the other daughter-in-law, whose name is Orpah, and is just a Interesting little tidbit here. Orpah is what Oprah was supposed to be named, but they made a mistake 
either on the birth certificate or when they told them. And so she became Oprah instead. Uh, but it should have been Orpa, which is kind of an interesting deal, given the way the that story would have helped, pans out. Would have helped Orpa's fame a little bit more to uh, to have a, a really famous namesake. Right. Now, given the possibility, I don't want to second guess here, given given the possibility of naming a child in this story, why you wouldn't put Ruth over Orpa is a puzzler to me. But it doesn't matter because it became Oprah. So you get these two women. They have a choice. Are they going to stay there? Are they going to go back with Naomi back to the land of Judah? And Ruth decides to go back with Naomi to Bethlehem. And it's about a 50-mile journey. They go back. And they really have fallen on hard times. Ruth decides that she needs to do something to feed the two of them. So she goes and begins to reap grain. And this would have been pretty common in the Old Testament. You see some laws about this in the book of Leviticus and the book of Exodus. Don't reap to the end of your fields because the poor would come and take the things that had either already fallen to the ground or on the edge where they could uh, where they mm-hmm. could go and reap without getting into the middle of what you had going with your crops. And this was almost a way, it's it's like a proto-tithe in some ways. You don't reap to the edge of your fields as an offering to the poor that they can come and take from your fields. So this is an act of desperation. It's an act of poverty. She goes and she begins to reap in the fields of Boaz. Well, this is a, a very providential meeting between two people that God has orchestrated, that Ruth finds herself in the field of Boaz. And the thing that the thing that kind of, popped out to me as I reread this story and was thinking about this is just how interesting and different the encounter between Boaz and Ruth is in this story than the ways that it could have been. You actually find out some things about Boaz immediately that are foreshadowing for this story if you know where it's going. Yes, he, you know, one of the words that runs through this is the word hased. Uh, we translate it loving kindness or mercy. It's often talked about a God's loving kindness and mercy. But you're going to see that word also applied to people in this story. And I was impressed by you. You get an insight into Boaz's character right away. He apparently has heard, as has everyone in Bethlehem, that Ruth is this foreigner who's come back with her mother-in-law. That she's a widow, and Naomi's also a widow, and how faithful and loyal she's been to try to help take care of her mother-in-law. And so Boaz uh, admires that, and he responds with great said, great loving kindness, and is very kind to Ruth because of her kindness to her mother-in-law. And so you get a quick insight into the character of Boaz, and frankly, he stands out uh, of Israel at this time. He He's not a normal Israelite in the time of the judges. He's sort of head and shoulders more faithful than most Israelites. Yeah, all the characters in this story, as we'll come back to as after we walk through the basic plot points, are archetypes for what it means to be faithful in a specific circumstance. So Boaz hasn't had the easiest life either. We don't actually know what's happened with Boaz. All we know is a person of his stature, he's wealthy, he's well-respected, might be a widower, uh, it would be more uncommon mm-hmm. to have had a divorce at this time in the history of Israel. Something has probably happened to splinter an existing family. Doesn't, doesn't have any kids that we know of. So there's some tragedy in his past. There's a broken family in his past. Of course, Naomi and Ruth both have been through tragedy. They both been through a broken family, had some shattered dreams. And God's about to put a lot of these pieces back together 
and redeem the situation. When Ruth meets Boaz, he blesses her, tells her she can stay in his field. So she is thrilled, goes back and tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, what's happened. Naomi's hatching a plan for what's going to happen next. And so she tells Ruth, you know, I think this guy might be kind of interested in you. So what you should do is go buy a new dress. He's having a big dinner party. You should go to the dinner party and uh, talk with him a little bit and see what happens. Now, this is the point of the story where depending on how you're teaching this story and what sources you're looking at, there's some pretty big disagreement over what exactly happens between Ruth and Boaz. And uh, I I think it was edgy for a while to say something something a little bit nefarious happens between the two of them. And And I thought that that was a pretty decent possibility, depending on how you read some of these metaphors and euphemisms in the text. The more I've studied it, though, the more I've come to the conclusion that when the dinner party is over, Ruth goes like Naomi advised, and all the men after this party are sleeping on the threshing floor. And the threshing floor would be where they would store their crops, and they're staying there essentially so that they don't get stolen. Now, Boaz has probably his own little space, and then he's got servants and family members around on the threshing floor. The more you think about that and the more you think about how these characters are appraised throughout the story, the less likely it seems that any kind of um, immoral sexual acts Mm -hmm. are taking place in this story. And I've heard this taught basically just outright. She goes and seduces Boaz in the night, and he is so kind of love drunk with her when he wakes up the next morning that he'll do whatever she wants. I think that really cuts against the grain of this story in two ways. I don't think it's consistent with the characters. And second, if you really pay attention to what's said when uh, Ruth comes to him, there's something even a little bit cooler for how this story plays out. So she goes and she goes at his feet while he's sleeping. And the reason a lot of people think that something sexual is happening here is because that is a euphemism other places in the Bible for some kind of act. So, but I, but I think here it really does make sense that she uncovers his feet from the blanket and lays down at the edge of his feet. And when he turns over in the night, he feels somebody's down there and wakes up and then they talk to each other. And what he, what she says is she says, put your wing over me or let the edge of your garment over me. And you see that in the old Testament as an invitation to marriage. In fact, one of the times you see it in Ezekiel chapter 16 it's God talking about how he has poetically married the nation of Israel. So in Ezekiel 16, 8, I passed by you and I saw you and I spread the corner of my garment over you to cover your nakedness. And I made my vow and entered into a covenant with you. What's really happening here is Ruth is kind of proposing to Boaz or in the sense she's right. proposing for him to propose. So she's the one really, he he kind of made the first move by opening the door for her, but she is definitely putting herself out there and uh, putting herself forward, asking him if he might consider proposing to her. How do, how do you read this scene? Yeah, this is very disputed. There are three Hebrew words in this story, chapter three, that admit of two different meanings. One is a sexualized meaning. The other is not. And I read it the same way you do. I think it's a trivial reading to read it as sexual. In other words, she goes and lays down at his feet like a prostitute would. 
and he has sex with her and then he feels guilty or love struck and decides to marry her. That is an extremely unlikely storyline in the Bible. If you wanted a prostitute and you were rich in those days, you just got a prostitute. I mean, I hate to be so blunt, but that explanation doesn't make very much sense. It's more reading 21st century values into an ancient story. What's much more likely is she is uh, taking a big risk by laying at his feet and saying, you've shown me kindness and you are related to Naomi and I'm related to her. Is there any chance you would be my redeemer and you would marry me? And of course, he could easily say, no, go away. And so I see it as much more tender and not just grossly sexualized. I think your reading is just right. And I think actually it's a it's a story of taking a risk and it's a story of faith. And then it's a story of character in the way Boaz responds. I think it's much more beautiful than a simple, over-sexualized reading of the story. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's vulnerable on her part and it's honorable on his part because he doesn't take advantage of her as he could have. And at the same time, one of the reasons we know that is because he says there's another redeemer. So he's, he's catching what she's putting out there, which is, would you right. consider marrying me? He says, I would, but there's another redeemer, which clues you into the fact that she probably uh, is talking to him about something that he's already thought about <laughs> because he's right. already done enough research to realize there's somebody else. And if I want to marry Ruth, I've got to go figure this out. And that's exactly what he does. He goes to the town gates. He meets with the leaders there. He's clearly well thought of. And he finds the person who is the closer kinsman, the closer redeemer. And he asks him if he'd like to redeem the land first, which is interesting. He's kind of a shrewd negotiator. He asks him about the land, and then he says, oh, by the way, if you redeem the land, then there's a Moabite woman named Ruth and Naomi, uh, who is uh, the person that that he would be related to, that you've got to redeem as well. And at that point, the person decides, oh, I've got kids of my own. That would interfere with my name being passed on and my inheritance. I'd have to split my inheritance with Mm -hmm. a child of Ruth's. And so I don't want to redeem it anymore. And one of the interesting little things about this story is one one of the points, the sticking points for this guy is he wants his name to be passed on. And if he splits his inheritance with Ruth, now he's got Moabite children. That's not going to be good for his genealogy. Right. But he, out of a desire to have his name known, we don't even know his name. In fact, his name is never mentioned in this story. It's more like a Mister So ironic kind of description of his name. Whereas Boaz and Ruth, every Jew and every Christian know their names, mm-hmm. and they're in the line of David. They're in the line of Christ. This is really missing out and having his priorities in the wrong place. But it just goes to show the kind of priorities that Boaz has. Uh, We can't necessarily blame the other person for thinking practically. What we can see is that this set of circumstances is uniquely appealing to Boaz because he has in mind what God has in mind, and he sees in Ruth what God sees in Ruth, and he's the one who's going to step up and redeem her. So after they have their little meeting, Boaz goes back, he redeems Ruth, they have a child, Naomi changes her name back from bitter. She's happy again. She's fulfilled. And we all end happily ever after. And the the book ends with a genealogy, which is just kind of icing on the cake. 
that their son, Obed, is the father of Jesse, who is the father of King David. And so you see that God was really working through this, this line on both sides. And when you get to Matthew chapter 1, Ruth is included in the genealogy. She's one of four women, all Gentile women, who are included in the genealogy of Christ. And just, just a reminder, like this story is of God's providential thinking that spans beyond what we typically think of. He He's working for the long run when we're often thinking in the short run. So in a story like this, one of the interesting things is, is to step back and talk about the different characters and what we learn from each of the characters. Um, and so the first one is Naomi, who we've talked about a little bit. She starts out as a main character and then fades a little bit to the background. Uh, but she's at the side of Ruth. She's experienced a ton of tragedy. She renames herself Mara, which means bitter. But then she's redeemed in this story. Exactly. She is serving other people. She follows her husband, Elimelech, to Moab, leaves her home country and follows him to Moab. Bad things happen. She turns to her two daughters-in-law and says, look, I release you. Go back to your families. I want you to remarry. I want you to have a life. I'm too old to remarry. Don't worry about me. Then she comes back with Ruth. And in chapter three, she, she kind of hatches a plan, but it's really less a scheme and more a hope. And that is perhaps, you know, Boaz will take a liking to you and you can have a future. I mean, she's really thinking of other people more than she's thinking of herself. And so she's, to me, a very noble character in this story. Yeah, she is. In Leon Morris's commentary on Ruth, he says uh, that the first time he preached through the book of Ruth, he was most drawn to Naomi because of the situation he and some of his church people were going through at the time. And he realized mm. that even though Naomi was a, one of the more forgettable kinds of people in the ancient world, she was a widow. She had moved away. She was past childbearing age. She would have been rejected by her people. She would have been filled with sorrow, no hope, but God held on to Naomi. And mm. he had something in store for her that she never would have imagined. The same is true for Ruth in some ways. Ruth is a picture of redemption. She proves to be faithful, kind, hardworking, steadfast. She converts to serve the God of Israel. She goes with her mother-in-law to take care of her. She goes out and gets a job. She puts herself out there. She um, confesses her love for Boaz and does what she believes to be right. And then she has a wonderful family of God-honoring people that you know, culminates in David and then later on culminates in Christ. Just a great picture of somebody who comes from uh, what we would consider a non-Christian background. She's a Moabite. She goes mm -hmm. through tragedy, had every right to be mad at God, but ended up trusting his plan, walking with him and seeing him deliver on his promises. And then lastly, you turn to Boaz, who is the picture of faithfulness. His name means strength. He is really the he is really the emblem of a strong man. He knows how to take care of other people. He knows how to use what he's been given for the poor and the needy. He knows how to control mm -hmm. himself and not take advantage of Ruth. He knows how to go and do the detail work and the due diligence he needs to do things right. And uh, in the end, he meets, prays for, blesses Ruth, and he finds a godly wife. And so it's a great story of faithfulness on Boaz's part as well. Exactly. I love uh, one place where he's talking to Ruth when she first comes in chapter two. This is chapter two, verse uh, 11 and 12. 
he notices her and he says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know. May the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And I, I love that because it shows the character of Boaz to appreciate her situation. But it also taps into one of the themes to me, and that is, even though she's not an Israelite, she comes to find shelter under the wings of the Lord. And there's a foreshadowing there that God has room for Jews and Gentiles alike, and for her to be used in such a powerful way, for her to even be a part of the Old Testament of the Jewish people, mm -hmm. is a testimony to God's grander plan, to which you and I are both beneficiaries. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the themes that pop out to me all run along the lines of uh, God reaching out and bringing mm -hmm. people in and taking people under his wings. I, I tell you, this time around, I thought about the application that this story has for single people in the church. I mean, I, I think young adult and single ministries should do series on the book of Ruth because you have so many people, three people, three different stages of life, three different experiences who are single and honor God and God provides for them. Now, two of them mm -hmm. end up getting married. One of them doesn't, you know, so it's not, it's not just your story of if you do all these good things and you trust God, he'll bring you your perfect spouse in the end. It's God will provide in the way that is best. And for two of these people, it's finding uh, a person to marry. And for one, it's finding a family of a different kind to be blessed by and to walk with. And I think there's just a great, uh, application on Ruth's part and on Boaz's part of what it means to honor God as a single mm -hmm. person. So I thought that was kind of an interesting angle I hadn't thought much about. God's plan through difficult circumstances pops up everywhere in this story. God's name is mentioned through this book, I think 21 times his name is mentioned or 23 times. And mm -hmm. it's often by characters talking about what God has done. There's there's less of the omniscient narrator talking about what God has done, and more these people were quick to say when God had done something or to pray about God doing something. And uh, I'll go back to Leon Morris's commentary. There, uh, there was a line at the end of his uh, commentary on this, on this book at the end of chapter four. And he says, God works out his purpose generation after generation. Limited as we are to one lifetime, each of us sees so little of what happens. A genealogy is a striking way of bringing before us the continuity of God's purpose through the ages. The process of history is not haphazard. There is a purpose in it all. And the purpose is the purpose of God. It's, it's a reverse Job story at the beginning. You start at the right. bottom and then you come, like Job does in the end, to a place that God has provided all along. So you get to see that God's multi-generational, uh, multi-scene story that he's telling is one of his faithfulness. I think so. And I, I love the protagonists in this story. If you think about Naomi and Ruth, Ruth proves to be, to me, the pinnacle of covenant faithfulness. She makes a covenant, if you will, a commitment to Naomi and stays faithful to her. She comes with her and says, "My, your God will be my God. And so she begins to serve God and she's faithful to God through this. She's a great example of covenant faithfulness. And she's not even an Israelite. It's the kind of thing that Jesus commended in the gospels when he found a Gentile who was so faithful. 
And I, I love that picture of what's happening. But if you think about it, those two women have nothing to count on. Because uh, seriously, even at the beginning, when Ruth is gleaning, I want you to think about this. All they had to eat was she would go out and get some heads of grain, bring back some barley. They'd crush it, put water in it, bake it, and they had bread to eat. I mean, that's that's a hand-to-mouth subsistence living. They had to rely on God. And to me, one of the beauties of this story is God's providence. God does indeed provide in his time and in his way, but he is faithful to reward and uh, take care of them in their faithfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, the the biggest you know, meta theme in this book is the picture it paints of Christ being a redeemer. So a lot of people think that right. Boaz is a foreshadowing of Christ. He is the honorable uh, man who weds his bride, the church, in faithfulness. He went and made provisions for us and arrangements, and he redeemed us in the same way that Boaz redeemed Ruth. And uh, so the ultimate kinsman redeemer being Jesus is a is a great application of this story. It gives us a little preview in a different life context than the way we sometimes think of Jesus' sacrifice and his purchase of the church with his blood. In the same way that Boaz took these hopeless people and gave them hope for a real life, Christ took us when we were hopeless and gave us a hope. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.